friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. We have a great show lined up for you today with Edward Penton. He has been on the Vatican beat for almost 20 years. Now he writes for the National Catholic Register, and he'll be telling us about his new book called The Next Pope. But first, right now we are just over a week into the new Biden-Harris administration, and it's been an eye-opener. All the things that were promised to us are rapidly coming true. We are getting what we voted for, good and hard, as that old saying says. So we've watched uh, President Biden issue a whole flurry of executive orders, a record-breaking number of executive orders for such a young administration, touching on all sorts of issues that we find very important as Catholics, as people of conscience. Of course, things to do with religious freedom, things to do with dignity of life, especially abortion, and we'll be talking about those later. Very concerning as well are changes already in transgender policy, the definition of sex um, and how it applies across federal agencies and in ways that touch all of us very intimately. Given these uh, recent developments, we've invited Erica Bakioki back to chat with us. She is an old friend of the show a really smart woman, a lawyer. She's written extensively on the topic of transgender and feminism, and she has a brand new book that is now available for pre-order on Amazon called The Rights of Women Reclaiming a Lost Vision, Catholic Ideas for a Secular World. Welcome back to the show, Erica. Thank you so much, Gracie, for having me. You know, I really want to get to your book because I'm excited uh, to hear about it. Um, but before that, I mentioned uh, a little earlier that, uh, you know, we're right in the beginning of the Biden administration, the Biden-Harris administration, and we're already feeling the effects of, uh, of a flurry of executive orders. Um, and one of them that I find especially concerning, and I'm sure you do too, is the transgender rule that he's uh, promulgated already. But since you're so up on it, you could explain it to us, tell us what's happened and what kind of effects you think we can expect. Sure. So um, on his very first day in office, um, he promulgated this executive order on preventing and combating discrimination on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation. You know, we expected to see this very soon into uh, the administration because we thought the Congress would be trying to pass the equality act very quickly and we can talk about that but to have an executive order on the first day was i thought shocking some people kind of had a heads up um, and what the order does is it extends the reasoning of bostock the clayton county the opinion that came out in 2020 to title nine so bostock of course was that case that was looking at how title seven provisions which deal with sex discrimination in employment areas whether that sex discrimination would apply to gender identity. And so Title VII, of course, is part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, prohibiting sex discrimination in employment. And what the, what the court said with actually Justice Gorsuch, in a big surprise, I thought, writing uh, the opinion for the majority, is that trans individuals ought not be discriminated against. And this is kind of the key language based on traits and actions that, per, that a person chooses to perform. 
term. So the court didn't go so far as to say that, you know, trans identifying males are really women. Those who call themselves trans women are really women. But they did extend Title VII into and to include gender identity law, uh, gender identity claims. And so what the executive order is doing is basically just as people anticipated, as lower courts began to do, extending this rule into Title uh, IX of the Educational Amendments of 1972, which of course has to do with um, equal opportunities, equal access for men and women in any educational program, any athletic program that gets federal funding. So all public schools. So at the very beginning of the order, they claim children should be able to learn without worrying about whether they will be denied access to the restroom or locker room or school sports. Hmm. So kind of astounding. And, you know, what what uh, Bostock had said is we'll put we'll push these kinds of questions off. We'll push the religious liberty questions and the conscience questions, but we'll also push off any other questions dealing with um, these kinds of things. But this is, you know, immediately invites trans identifying males who call themselves trans women into into women's sports with the privileges of testosterone that they have had, you know, searing through their bodies for all their adolescence to, of course, crush women um, in sports such as track. And we've seen in Connecticut, you know, steal state titles and that type of thing. And we anticipate that those athletes in Connecticut will be then taking scholarships from women. Before we get into the educational part of it that the executive order specified, right? That's the specifics of the executive order in education. Mm -hmm. On the issue of employment, the original employment discrimination statute was about the idea, which I think all of us can agree with, that if two people who are similarly capable of of doing the same job, right? So I'm a radiologist. So a male radiologist and a female radiologist, radiologist are basically equal when it comes to their ability to perform our job, which is to interpret images. And then my employer shouldn't say, well, I'm only going to advance the male. If a male and a female are sitting in front of me, I'm only going to take the male. Or I prefer to only work with women, so I'm only going to hire a woman or, or promote a woman. And that's the way it was always understood. And I think most Americans and most people still understand discrimination on the basis of sex. Is that correct, Erica? Yeah, that's right. And really, you know, the way Justice Ginsburg, who really, you know, was the advocate for this kind of law coming up as an ACLU attorney in the 1970s and then on, on the bench, you know, herself, the way she described this was really really trying to eradicate sex stereotypes from the law. And so just because men and women have different bodies or different Mm -hmm. reproductive capacities, that doesn't mean that women should be pigeonholed as mothers only, right? So, you know, you and I have the capacities to become mothers and we are mothers, but that should not keep us or we should not be discriminated from becoming the doctor and lawyer we are. And so what's fascinating, I think, about this is that this trans law basically flips this whole thing on its head. And so really sex stereotypes stereotypes that were supposed to be eradicated from the law have actually been invited right back in by this Bostock opinion, because the way they're looking at this, the way they're looking at this trans identifying male is based on his traits and actions. So the fact that he wanted to dress as as a woman. And so really, they're kind of defining womanhood, not by that which defines, you know, makes the difference between men and women, which is our reproductive capacities, but the fact that he could dress like a woman, act like a woman. So those basic six stereotypes that, you know, were meant to be eradicated from the law in order that you and I might have access to education as we, you know, ought to and those types of things without being discriminated based on our sex. But Erica, there are jobs that you want to be performed by women or by men, even because they're not 
equal when it comes to performing the job, right? So I'm thinking maybe you like to go have your bikini line waxed, right? As a woman. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. something women yeah. do. You wouldn't go to a male to wax your bikini line. So if you were running a wax shop, you would only hire women. Your customers are women and you want them to feel comfortable being waxed by women. And what does right. employment discrimination has to say about that? And then what happens to that when you add this transgender ideology to it? That's right. So there is a business necessity defense and always has been. And so exactly right. So, you know, there can be a claim of sex discrimination and then the business or employer can come back and say, well, it's necessary for me to have this woman or this man do this job. Obviously, that's going to be strictly construed, you know. But of course, in in the case of something like bikini waxing, uh, you would think, I don't know that there's case law on this, but you would think (laughs) that that would be something that only women would do to other women. But you're absolutely right. In this case, I don't see how just as men, um, these trans identifying men would be invited into women's locker rooms, women's sports teams, women's jails, women's shelters, etc. I don't see how they could be kept out of um, that kind of job as well. I guess at the bottom of everything, and I'm sure our listeners understand, is that we have redefined sex. We have said, so So as I'm, I know as a doctor, but as anybody who has the, the most the most basic understanding of science and just physical reality, all mammals come in two sexes, male and female. And our experience of our, our entire disposition, our physical disposition is different, whether we're male or female, and the way we experience life and interact with all the different parts of, of life is completely different. And there's only those two categories, male and female. Okay. Um, so when we take that out of what the way we arrange ourselves and call sex something that can be chosen or conflate it with gender, which is more of a social a social idea of how we express our sex, then we come up upon all this uh, all this craziness that we're experiencing. That's right. And you know it's I think it's notable and and there are philosophers who have who have written this that when we do something like this, we're basically saying that everyone now has to choose their sex, right? Or their gender identity when these two things are conflated. And so I, it's not, you know, I'm not identified as something by birth. Um, you know, you as a doctor can't tell me what I am at birth that I have to choose that. And so what it really does is, I mean, it pushes this idea, this kind of consumerism or materialism that I think is pretty core sometimes to some of our sort of American philosophy and pushes it all the way to something that is so deeply foundational and biological, which is sex, you know, that it's something that must be chosen. And, you know, where does this come straight out of? Well, all sorts of, you know, enlightenment philosophy, but we see it most clearly in our law, obviously, with regard to pregnancy. So when pregnancy can be chosen and, you know, whether we keep the child can be chosen, well, why not push it further? And, you know, our sex is actually, our gender identity is actually chosen. And how confusing this must be to children, of course. Well, you're talking about the idea that there is perfect autonomy, right? Perfect personal autonomy as to delineating our own selves and shaping our own realities. Yeah. And as you say, we apply it first to our reproduction. We can we say we reproduce when we want and if we've already reproduced, we can we can cancel it through an abortion, but now it extends also to even that very physical reality that we can't erase even with surgeries and hormones, which is our sex, which is imprinted on every single one of our somatic cells in our body. That's right. And so it's just it's sort of it's another legal fiction that, you know, we're trying to build into the law, which is, you know, the legal fiction that the unborn or preborn child is not actually a person or an individual with human rights. And now we have this kind 
of this legal fiction of sex that, you know, used to mean something very concrete, as concrete as it could get, right? Mm -hmm. And now is something we speak into existence, as a philosopher Daniel Moody says, we speak our gender identity into existence. And the law is supposed to somehow account for this when that's not what the law does, right? It deals with kind of embodied human beings, because that's what we are. And so it really elevates this fleeting, often fleeting in the case of um, an individual's life, if they want to, you know, determine their sex and gender identity in a very fluid way. How does the law, how does the law deal with that? And it's something, you know, that is so nebulous. And I mean, we haven't, we haven't dealt with anything like this, I don't think that I can think of in the law. So it's, it's a very dangerous thing. And it, when, you know, when language and, uh, you know, people's sort of uh, desires come upon law, then we're, we start to get into tyrannical rule. It's no longer law. It's no longer being ruled by, by reason. It's really by something else entirely. We wonder, as we watch all this going on, we wonder as regular people not living in academia or on the fringes of uh, progressive ideology, we wonder when do people stop and say, wait, this is madness. And I wonder if the fact that people who are watching, who are going to be watching their daughters more and more be shuffled aside in their sports opportunities and, and other things in school. No, it doesn't just have to be sports, but other things where it's important for girls to have their own space. I wonder if this could be a point where people will finally stand up and say enough of the madness. Yeah, you know, I really hope so. I have to say when I first started researching this several years ago, I really couldn't get it out of my mind. I mean, I just, you know, I was I was actually this morning when I was praying the rosary and I was meditating on, you know, Jesus and agony and, and his agony in the garden and I was just thinking, you know, that he foresaw all of this and was grieving for all of us and, you know, those children who are now so confused or being brought up in a in a, you know, in a culture that is so confusing. And, you know, I was thinking about putting this historical moment in some context, you know, and, and thinking about how deeply he must be grieving. So, like, we moved from condemning acts that were sort of evils, you know, like the kind the destruction of women's genitalia in, you know, certain um, societies to kind of celebrating when young children are setting themselves on the course to do that themselves. And I just, it's, it's kind of astonishing. Like, as an intellectual, I move right into the ideas, you know, and how, how the ideas are false ideas that have been sort of have moved through our culture and where they've come from and all that. But to think about the children, I think, who are involved in this, that's the part that is just grieves me so much. And you just can imagine how much it grieves our Lord. And so I think, you know, it's one of those things where, where scripture tells us this demon only comes out with prayer and fasting, I think is right, is that we really, it really requires a lot of fasting on, on behalf of the entire Christian community and just speaking the truth with lots and lots of love, because clearly, there's so much woundedness. We already know that. We've already seen that for decades now. But to get to get where we are actually encouraging children to self-mutilate or to you know have themselves mutilated, and doctors are involved in that, and doctors are prohibited in some in some states from speaking out against it, from counseling them otherwise. I mean, this is astonishing. I think just as kind of the divorce revolution led to, I think you know, conversions like mine, reversions like mine into the church. You know, feeling the pain of my own parents' divorce and my mother marrying, divorcing two other times. You know. One hopes that the same sort of thing will be seen both by those children who then grow up a bit and kind of come back and and, um, see what they've done to themselves. But hopefully before that, you know, hopefully parents will start to kind of really stand up against this. And, you know, the fact that he's done this so quickly makes me think, you know, that hopefully there'll be some sort of quick backlash as well. I mean, if it takes two years, but hope, you know, hopefully we can all be really educating ourselves in that time, be taking our children out of public 
schools as best we can, be supporting these new classical schools and those types of things, and, you know, be huddling together and praying as much as we can um, for this. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm talking to Erica Bakioki. She's a pro-life feminist legal scholar who's just written a new book called The Rights of Women Reclaiming a Lost Vision. Erica, moving on to your book. Tell us about your book. What's it about and what what did you hope to accomplish by writing it? Yeah, so I've actually been working on it for some time and it really stems right from kind of the inadequacy of our theories of rights, which we can see in where we've come. You know, if we can say that woman has a right to take the life of her own child to whom she properly owes duties of care, if we can say that, you know, children, now we haven't said that children have the right to mutilate their genitalia, but certainly um, have the have the right to be, you know, trans individuals who are invited into other locker. I mean, there's a problem, right, with our ideas of rights. And I think, you know, a lot of it, um, I look at sort of the philosophical um, shaping of all that throughout the book, but I wanted to go back. I'm deeply informed by um, the work of Marianne Glendon, whose famous book, Rights Talk, um, was really instrumental to me as a pro-choice feminist in college. I read that book and it really, it really shaped kind of how I began to think about things. So I wanted to really go back to kind of the philosophical precursors of the women's rights movement. And I went back to Mary Wollstonecraft, who's an 18th century. British philosopher and then traced her thought through the early American women's rights advocates to really find that for the most part, though there's a there's a radical strain that comes up and then takes becomes prominent in the 1970s, the very early women's rights advocates building on Wollstonecraft's thought understood rights as based on or grounded in our responsibilities to God and to others, um, and really our ultimate responsibilities to live lives of um, moral excellence. And so I wanted to kind of show how this strain of thought, um, not only for women's rights, but for rights generally, is just um, sort of more foundational and just a better way to think about rights as grounded in our concrete responsibilities. That really responsibilities come first and then our rights enable us to fulfill our responsibilities or allow, you know, like children and others to make claims on those who have, have responsibilities to them. And so really responsibilities are kind of the first, uh, the first thing and then rights rather than the other way around. How did the, how did, so if I remember correctly, Mary Wollstonecraft, she based her idea, she based her writings and her ideas on, on women's rights as being equal to the rights of men on the fact that women, like men, were reasoning creatures, that they had been endowed by God with the same ability to reason. Correct? Is that true, Erica? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That they're rational creatures. And they're really... Um, important part, Gracie, is how she understood both creatures and how she understood reason. <laughs> and, and I think those are really important questions that were going on in her, you know, at her time in the Enlightenment. Her understanding of creatures is very much creatures of God, and so dependent upon God. Um, and her understanding of reason is really, she didn't use the word participation, but she, you know, understood reason as being a capacity given by God in order that we can understand how to live lives of virtue and how to, you know, acquire um, and, and seek to acquire wisdom. So what I talk about is that she kind of is this great 
kind of amalgamum of both the ancient understandings of and the ancient quest for virtue and wisdom combined with a modern quest for um, for equality and, and political freedom. Because I think what bothered Mary Wollstonecraft very much is that women were being uh, treated as infants uh, throughout their entire lives and not being uh, Uh, taught to reason, not being allowed to have, not, not allowed to have their reasoning, um, their capacities to develop as reasoning people. And therefore, they were sort of um, sentimental infants and could never properly approach their duties and take take charge of their duties because they hadn't been given the training um, that they needed. Uh, does that, does that, is that right, Erica? That's exactly right. You've nailed it. Absolutely. That's right. And that their real quest, I mean, what's fascinating in a book about women's rights is that rights is actually, the word does not come up very much, but mm -hmm. virtue is all the way through the book. And she really understood that the purpose of life is to attain to virtue. And one of the problems at that time was that women's virtue was conceived as one term, which was chastity and chastity oh, alone. Right. Mm -hmm. And whereas, um, you know, men had sort of the full panoply of virtues, although not chastity <laughs> in the sense <laughs> that they tended to, women tended to be blamed for men's lack of chastity. Um, and so she really bemoans that fact and, and kind of points to the real, you know, the cause of a lot of women's suffering was the fact that men didn't, weren't serious about chastity in the way that they held, you know, they expected women to be. But then she basically says, look, if women are rational creatures, just like men, then they are capable of um, attaining lives of virtue, all of the virtues, and that that is really their shared human purpose is to develop those capacities And but towards certain ends, and that's a really key part is that it's not just develop capacities, which you see with John Stuart Mill, and then in capacity theorists now like Martha, Martha Nissbaum, etc. But it's really toward a particular end, which is um, virtue and wisdom, which is where you sort of see the ancient strain in her thought. So this proto-feminist um, conceives of, of women as being denied their right, in a sense, to education, to be treated as, as, as rational beings, that then turns about and makes women incapable of fulfilling their duties and attaining all the virtues. That's right. Right? So then you have this uh, this devolution of, <laughs> of what feminism ought to be, especially in the 70s. And you're trying to recapture that. So what? how do you recapture that idea of feminism for today's secular age? Yes, it's a good question. And it's a it's a big book. It's about it's a little bit more than 400 pages. But what I, I do show sort of the strains of Mary Wollstonecraft's thought that come all the way even through parts of Betty Friedan, when she asked that women be thought of as persons and not only as mothers, that they should be, you know, that the profession should be opened up to them, education should be opened up to them, etc. But I, you know, where we start to go downhill is when Betty Friedan joins up forces with the population control advocates of abortion and start to see, I mean, the real shift happens with this idea, uh, it's a shift in an understanding of voluntary motherhood, which I get into. So voluntary motherhood with the early American feminists was really the belief that women ought to be free to determine when to have children in other words, when to have sex. So their husbands ought not push sex upon them because of reproductive asymmetry. Women were the ones who carried children and then raised the children, you know, primarily um, were, so, you know, were primarily responsibility for that, for especially in infancy, that women ought to be able to, as Sarah Grimke says, control all preliminaries. And so the early American feminists were very much against 
both contraception and abortion because they believed these to facilitate kind of male aggression and male presumption, sexual presumption. And so what you see is this drastic shift with similar language used by someone like Betty Friedan, who talks about not wanting to be forced into motherhood, but she doesn't understand that to be the call of abstinence and understanding how reproduction works and abstaining during, you know, fertile periods, etc., which is what the early American feminists were trying to get to, though the science wasn't there yet. Instead, she understands you're not wanting to be forced into motherhood the way, well, for these today's abortion rights advocate understand, which is that you can then determine when you, whether to carry that child to term, or you can determine to kill it. And so you engage, they're engaging in private killing, right? And, and the court gives the imprimatur to that. And so what I show is that this would be, would have been ridiculous for someone like Mary Wollstonecraft, for whom the right was there in order to care for or, uh, those to whom we had responsibilities, in order to fulfill those prior duties, those pre-existing duties, of course, to our children. And so if a society wasn't, you know, um, uh, was, you know, not allowing women to be educated, not allowing women to have some sort of financial stability, was keeping women in difficult, you know, marriages of abuse and that type of thing where they weren't able to care for their children. Well, that would be a problem with the society that wouldn't enable them to take the life of their child. I then go on to really lean on Mary, um, Marion Glendon's work and showing sort of the importance of the law in taking seriously dependency and the shared responsibilities of men and women um, in caring for dependency. I know Mary Wollstonecraft talks about that a lot, uh, about the, the, the needs of, of a woman to take care of her, her elderly parents um, That's right. and other dependents. And, and so Marianne Glendon, she writes about that specifically, about dependency and, and, the, and the role she, that women have to fulfill there. Well, she does write a lot about dependency. What's interesting about Marianne Glendon, who has really been one of the leading scholars in human rights, in um, understandings of rights of her generation, if not, you know, in the last um, century, is that she was a single mother. And so at the very beginning of her legal career, she was, you know, the only woman who sat on the law review at uh, University of Chicago in her time. She was a real incredible scholar, um, incredible legal thinker. And she was left by her first husband and to raise her children, her child alone. Um, and so she really got dependency in her bones mm -hmm. <laughs> and the vulnerability that came with dependency. And so she really, she wrote a really monumental book called Abortion and uh, Divorce in Western Law, where she, sh she shows that our abortion law, especially in our kind of autonomy um, focused American uh, law, really, you know, provides, um, it gives real short shrift to um, those, to, to both dependents, of course, and then those caring for dependents, so primarily women, of course, and kind of lets men and others off the hook. And so she, I mean, she provides, she is sort of um, my greatest intellectual um, hero and my mentor. And so she kind of lays out the framework in the last part of the book, uh, where I sort of start to rebuild an understanding of rights as necessary for sort of living lives of excellence. Well, Erica, I'm really looking forward to reading your book. It's it's available now on pre-order on Amazon. And uh, to remind our listeners, it's called The Rights of Women Reclaiming a Lost Vision, Catholic Ideas for a Secular World. It sounds fascinating. And I think today very much needed. Um, we have to refashion, rethink out all the things that we that we took for granted going forward as it's being big coming abundantly clear that we can't take anything for granted, right? Yes, it's so true. Well, thank you, Erica, for joining us. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm happy to have an old friend with me for this next segment. Many people follow Edward Penton's reporting on all things Vatican for the National Catholic Register. He's here with me today to discuss his new book, which is called The Next Pope, The Leading Cardinal Candidates. Welcome to the show, Edward. Thanks, Gracie. Great to be with you. Edward, you've been covering the Vatican for 20 years. Coming up for 18 now, so you're almost there. Just so too short. That's a long time, and you've seen a lot, a lot of things change. Uh, people coming and going at the Vatican, popes, for instance. So, what led yeah. you to to write a book? Is this your first book? This is my second book. Um, I did write a book on the the family synods back in 2015, but this is my probably the the, the main, the biggest book I've written. And but it's not really all my book. It's not all my all my work. It's the fruit of many years of research by a collaborative team of researchers, international scholars. So it's it's a team effort. It was the idea was also came from oh, three or four years ago now to do this book, really to equip the cardinals with a good knowledge of the potential candidates for popes. So I sort of came onto it a little later on. I was asked to, to perhaps, um, you know, edit it and go through it and add anything I wanted. So, so that's what I did. And it should be out in about a week's time. So is your book aimed at the cardinals specifically who will be in the conclave so that they can have a more global idea of the cardinals that might yeah. be Pope? Exactly, yes. I mean, there's always been a concern that, and it goes back centuries, that whether the cardinals electing a pope know enough about the potential cardinals to become pope. And this has become quite acute in recent years, particularly because Pope Francis doesn't have any more the meeting of cardinals. When there's a cardinal making consistory, he stopped having those meetings, which is a good chance for cardinals to get to know each other. So they don't have that. And even at the last conclave, they a few complained that they didn't have, they found it quite confusing. Using. There was a lack of information about various cardinals. And so this book really aims to try to put that right. But it's not aimed just at the cardinals. It's also aimed at, at the faithful, because the faithful, it's very important, really, that we know who could become pope. Although we don't have a say as much, we, we can pray for the right pope, and many do and, and wish to. And this book really is aimed at aiding that and to give, so not just the cardinals uh, a good knowledge of who could become pope, but also the faithful and to know who to pray for. It used to be that popes were always Italians and that of course changed with Pope John Paul II does that complicate knowing who the man is for the cardinals and even for the faithful that these are people these are cardinals that can come from any part of the world and and hopefully will it's wonderful to have the whole world represented in the papacy as you say that's quite a recent thing I think for 450 years up until John Paul II uh, they were were always Italians and so this is a, a fairly new thing that you can get popes from any part of the world and so that is we try to cater for that in the book we've got cardinals from a whole variety of nations and there are of course quite a few Italians too but that also makes it harder to to predict who, who could become Pope because the, the choice of cardinals is much wider now and the church is much more international than it perhaps it used to be and so that obviously makes it more challenging to predict but yes so, so the, there is a a very strong chance that it could be a non-Italian, but it could also go back to the Italians because sure. there have been quite, obviously, as we know, a few upheavals in the last few years. And some say, well, we they'll want it to go back to the sort of safe hands of the Italians. So that's <laughs> so that's that's quite possible. Yeah. In your book, you detail 19 potential candidates. Yes. How did you come up for this list? Obviously, there are everybody has favorites. I have my favorite cardinals, and probably Catholics who are paying attention and 
who have their own interests uh, or their own tastes and the things that they find uh, most important have their favorites. How did you come up with a list of 19? We felt that they had the greatest chance of being elected Pope given their backgrounds, their reputations to leadership. We divide each profile into the three offices of bishop. And so we, we sort of chose them on those three offices, so the office of sanctity, governance and teaching. If they match those, we felt if they show certain proficiency in those areas, whether they are, to put it crudely, on the left or on the right, we thought they should be included. So we have, you know, so we have, for example, we have Cardinal Matteo Zuppi uh, from Bologna, who's considered to be quite a liberal candidate cardinal but he's got a reputation for for various uh, strengths in leadership and so forth and so we wanted to put him in but we also have cardinal raymond burke for instance who's considered to be on the on the right or on the conservative or orthodox side and so we have him too so but all the the benchmarks are really good sanctity governance and teaching and whether they show proficiency in those areas also whether they have a sort of general favorability ranking in the church we thought if they have a certain reputation they should be included and so we have the sort of well-known cardinals as well, but all based on these criteria. Well, this may sound frivolous to you, Ed, but I hope that Cardinal Burke is elected because one time I had dinner with him in Rome in a group of people and he ordered my dinner for me. And he was, (laughs) so I want to be able to say that the Pope ordered my dinner for me. (laughs) And by the way, he made a fantastic choice. It was the most delicious meal I had in Rome. (laughs) Well, that's very uh, typical of him. He's very much a gentleman. And in fact, what I hope from this book you get is is the real essence of the character of each cardinal because you know someone like cardinal burke does get i think and i think many people feel he gets an unfair unfair reception often in the press uh, because he takes a, a conservative line and so he gets a lot of opposition but that doesn't portray him really as he really is and uh, anyone who knows him knows that he's a very great gentleman and a very humble pleasant cardinal and i think uh, that hopefully comes across in the book and that comes across with all the cardinal candidates you get a good idea of their character as well as why they stand on certain church teachings, how they've governed and and how they see the sanctity of their office. Well, Edward, I was being frivolous, but the truth is it was a delightful evening and and he is a gentleman and and in the most beautiful sense, he's gentle, Cardinal Burke. Yes. He's gentle and kind and and, and extremely thoughtful. I I happen to be a big fan of his. (laughs) Whether or not he ordered my dinner, that's a separate thing entirely. (laughs) (laughs) So what about let me ask you, what about the idea that the next Pope will come from the, again, from the Southern Hemisphere, maybe from Africa? We do hear these things out here in the in the Catholic world. Yes, well, that could well happen. Of course, the church is growing fastest in Africa. So, and the Pope has chosen as cardinals, he's gone more to what he says are the peripheries, those in the global South. So he's chosen quite a few more cardinals to come from the global South. And so they have, there's more chance that they could be elected. On the other hand, they are quite recently made cardinals they haven't had much experience and so that doesn't that doesn't increase their chances so much although it's quite possible but but yes I think there is a good chance that you could get somebody from Asia or Africa where the church is growing fastest and it, often there's been complaints in the past that oh well the, the cardinals are too Eurocentric or too Western centric and you need nowadays because the church is so universal and so globalized that you need to have a, a Pope who uh, speaks for the, the global south as I say where the church is growing fastest so that could well happen.
happen yet. Well, it does seem to me that the prelates from places in the world where the church is vibrant and growing and young, they do seem to have something that they can offer the rest of the church, right? Whereas in Europe and, and even here in America, there's a horrible post-Christian malaise that we, yes. that we are living through. Yes, that's true. And uh, often it's said in Africa, especially the, the hierarchy is very orthodox. They very take very seriously the church's teaching. They don't wish to change it. They don't wish to tinker with it. And many feel, and I think there's an increasing number of people in the West, uh, of, of faithful in the West, who feel that that is what the church needs, is someone who is who does stand for the church, stand for the church's teaching and, and doesn't waver. And certainly you get that in the global, parts of the global South, especially Africa. I mean, Cardinal Robert Seurat, for example, is a good example of someone who is so unwilling to compromise with the spirit of the world and really is a, a true believer, someone who really does stand by the church's teaching, that may well put him in a, in a sort of pole position, if you like, for, for being elected. And also, he is, as a lot of people think, he's very sort of prophetic. I mean, he's, he speaks to people about the issues of today in a very spiritual and brings in the supernatural, which many say is lacking in the church in the West and that that's been lost. So there could be that. That does make his chances of being elected. Someone like Cardinal Sarah much stronger, I think. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm talking to Edward Penton. He's the Vatican reporter for the National Catholic Register about his book called The Next Pope, The Leading Cardinal Candidates. Edward, I was going to ask you about Cardinal Sarah because he's another one of my favorites. And let's see, I want him to be Pope because he signed a book for me. And so I would have a book that the Pope signed. <laughs> I'm being frivolous again. But, but truly, I've read two of his books, his first book, which is his autobiography. It's an amazing book. It has three or four chapters right in the middle that every Catholic should read, whether or not they're interested yes. in the biography of Cardinal Sarah. But he really God connects... Or yes. God or yes. nothing, thank you. And he really connects the dots. He did for me anyway, and I think he would for most readers, as to the modern culture's attack on the basis of so much that makes human lives valuable and, and enables us to flourish. Yes, exactly. I, that's just what I was saying earlier. I think that, that he speaks to people who who find the church has become rather rudderless and rather lacking in voice and in teaching to apply to the current uh, situations in the world, particularly now. So, And I think many feel that Cardinal Sarar is, is one of others who who has that ability to speak with a prophetic voice. And I think that's something that, that could be considered important to the next conclave among the sacred college. That's one of your categories, right? Prophetic, no, you told me sanctity, the ability to yes. govern and teaching, but teaching would include the prophetic voice, yes? That's right, yes, yes. In fact, I think the teaching office in the book is the most interesting and perhaps the most extensive part of each profile, because that does give you best the best idea of just how prophetic and how clued in each cardinal is to, to what's going on and how much they consider teaching and morality and all of that to be of great importance. Of course, that's not the only criteria, but that is an important one, we thought. Mm. And what about an American, Edward? Yes, well, we've got two Americans. As I said, Cardinal Raymond Burke is in there and we have Cardinal Sean O'Malley of Boston. Now, usually the cardinal who belongs to a 
superpower is considered, this goes back to sort of, I think, the 18th century or longer, they're usually considered not to be strong candidates because they already have a lot of power in the world anyway, connected to the nation that they belong to. But I think that's not necessarily the case these days. That's going back to sort of when, you know, we had the papal states and the church was very much more involved in in sort of politics than it is now. So I think that there is a good chance, I think, or at least an increased chance that, that there could be an American Pope elected, despite those sort of caveats from the past. But we'll have to see. But certainly we feel that Cardinal O'Malley and Cardinal Burke have probably the best chances, at least based on the criteria that we put up, to be elected. Although Cardinal O'Malley is getting on a little in the years. He's, I think he's up for retirement this year. He's 75 or more. So, But that doesn't preclude him, of course, from being elected. Any cardinal could, in fact, any baptized Christian can be can be elected, but any cardinal can be elected even if they're over 80, so it's it's quite possible. You know, I didn't know that, Edward, what you were just mentioned, that any baptized Christian could be elected Pope. That's interesting. Yes, not often said. In fact, you don't have to be, there have been, I think, eight cases, I put it in the book, where cardinals have been, uh, non-cardinals have been elected Pope, so it doesn't, they don't have to be cardinal, they could be, usually they are, of course, and, and those who weren't cardinals were bishops or priests, I believe. And what about the age? What do you think, is there a thought that the next Pope should be a younger man? Or, or do, they, do these political kind of ideas, no? Where should the Pope be from? How old should he be? Does that not, do you think that figures into the conclave, their deliberations? Yeah, I think it does. I think it does, Gracie, because I think they want to obviously have somebody who's obviously able and not failing in any way in, in their faculties. So I think they will try to go for somebody younger if they can. Obviously, they chose Jorge Bogolio in 2013, and he was, I think, 78 at the time. So, but of course, 78, as I say, in Vatican years, is not that, not that old. But they, they could easily go for someone much younger this time, um, in which case you could get somebody like Cardinal Zuppi or, or Cardinal Erdo of, of Budapest, Hungary, who's still quite young. I think he's in his 60s still. So, so yes, but that age does come into it, certainly, and as, as, as well as nationality. Now, things in the church cannot be divided as in politics and into right and left, liberal and conservative. Obviously, we, we don't pin ourselves to those labels, and nor should yes. we. But what about the idea that we had Pope Benedict Emeritus now, but that he was so strong in theology and orthodoxy and in his comprehension, and the way that he exposed that the moral relativism was, was the great dictator of our age. And then Pope Francis, who takes a different line, you know, he says, so I love his Spanish expressions. He says, "Tira los platos al aire, a ver que se, a ver que se, uh, que se rompan." You know, throw the plates in the air and let them, let them fly and break, and then yes. we'll see. And yes. and that's it's a wonderful thing too. It's it's a different style, and it allows um, people to experience the church and to relate to the church in different ways that maybe they were missing. Mm -hmm. What do you mm -hmm. think about that? Do you think that there's an issue that there is this desire to maybe strike a new a new tone that the church needs? Maybe a new tone. There is a Roman saying that a fat pope follows a thin one, which. <laughs> <laughs> often uh, uh, so to put it crudely I mean we yes we don't like to use these labels and but you know somebody a pope who's perhaps more liberal will tend to be followed by someone who's more conservative and vice versa so the pendulum tends to swing between the left and the right but but that's not always the case and it doesn't that always follow quite like politics in that sense and so it could easily somebody could continue very much the France's is line what I suspect might happen though I don't like to go into predictions too much but what I suspect might happen is that you get someone who does wish to continue France's sort of direction but 
that he will be more perhaps diplomatic, less throwing the plates around, and more <laughs> sort of conciliatory, perhaps and unifying. And that might that might be the case, but but we'll we'll have to see about that. But uh, yeah, I think that's that's probably the way it'll go as far as I can see at the moment. So Edward, if you don't mind me becoming a little more personal, you are convert, I believe, to the Catholic faith. That's right. And you are yes. a Catholic journalist. What drew you to the faith and, and how has being a Catholic journalist informed that conversion and, and, and made it more powerful? Yes, uh, thanks for the question. Well, it was really, um, uh, I was teaching actually in Africa, in Tanzania with, with Benedictines. I was an Anglican at the time uh, with German Benedictines uh, for a couple of years back in the 90s and uh, came to the growing realization, I was already searching, but I came to the growing realization that the, the true faith, the, the fullness of the faith and the truth was found in the Catholic Church and uh, it was not in the Anglican Church. And when I came back, I, I was received into the church and, and have never regretted. It. It's been uh, it's it's something that I've always felt to be very sure, despite all of the, the the politics and the weaknesses of our of our human nature. That's never departed from me, and I think that the church always has does have that um, the fullness of the truth. So that's so that's what brought me in, and I think my journalism has, has only helped me in that in that sense, and I hope has helped readers too. I've tried to inform the articles with faith, and to try and help educate not just me, but also the readers too and that's uh, it's in that way it's been very edifying to my faith I find well you're doing a wonderful job Edward you, and and I know that you have been edifying to the readers and and bringing them closer to God and and, and to our, our beautiful church and it's been a real Thank pleasure you. talking to you Edward and getting a closer look at your new book which I'm really looking forward to reading thank you for all you do keeping a watchful eye on Rome and listeners to learn more about the next Pope visit sophiainstitutepress.com and make sure to read all of Edward Penton's fine reporting and analysis at the National Catholic Register by, by visiting ncregister.com. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us this Sunday, when we'll see him enter a synagogue on the Sabbath day and teach. All those who listen to him, St. Mark tells us, were astounded at his teaching, for he taught with authority and not like the scribes. Jesus then showed the tremendous power of his authoritative words by silencing and casting out a demon from a man, which amazed the crowd even further. What is this, they asked, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey. The same Jesus who entered the Capernaum synagogue on the Jewish Sabbath enters our parishes on the Christian Sabbath, and he teaches with the same authority he wielded 2,000 years ago. He speaks to us in the word of God, and later he who created the heavens and the earth with his word who called fishermen and tax collectors to follow him so powerfully that at his summons they immediately got up and did so, does something far more amazing than cast out a devil or silence a stormy sea. He changes bread and wine into himself and casts himself into us. If we recognize what's really going on, if we awaken to the power of his words, people today ought to be far more amazed than Jesus' contemporaries two millennia ago. Jesus teaches unlike any other teacher who has ever come before or after. 
His contemporaries said he taught with authority, unlike the scribes. The scribes, the ancient biblical scholars, always used to cite sacred scripture or Jewish tradition to base their teachings on the authority of the word of God. That was obviously an appropriate way for them to teach, sharing their interpretation of God's word rather than merely their own opinions. But Jesus didn't need to cite the word of God because he is the word of God. The Sermon on the Mount, for example, he contrasted himself to what Moses, the Jewish greatest teacher, about the ways of God up until then, and had said to them on behalf of God in the desert. You've heard that it was said, in other words, Moses said to you, you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. But then Jesus says, but I say to you, shall not even be angry with a brother or look at a woman with lust in your heart or if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn and offer him the other as well. Jesus was capable of saying, but I say to you, in contrast to what the greatest biblical figure until then had said. Authority comes from the Latin word outdoor for author. And Jesus spoke with authority because he is the author, the creator of man, woman, and the world. To capture just a little of what it must have been like to listen to Jesus talk about God, about the world, about man, about faith and morality. It would be better than listening to the Wright brothers talk about airplanes, Henry Ford talk about cars, Thomas Edison describe electricity, Steve Jobs talk about computers, iPads, and iPhones, all of whom could speak with stunning authority because they were the authors, the inventors of what we now take for granted. That's just a glimpse of what it would be like to listen in the Capernaum synagogue to Jesus, who is the author of the world, the one through whom we and all things were made. Even if we can't go back in a time machine to Capernaum, we can and should have that experience of amazement and astonishment because the same Jesus continues to teach us with that same amazing authority. He does so first and obviously at Mass. The fathers of the Second Vatican Council emphatically reminded us that when the Holy Scriptures are read in church, it is Christ himself who speaks. That's why we stand at Mass when the Gospel is proclaimed, out of reverence and respect for Christ, who himself is proclaiming the words of the Gospel through his minister. Christ also speaks to us through the teaching of the church he founded, because he gave that church his own amazing authority to continue his saving work. Before ascending into heaven, he said to the apostles, full authority, total, astonishing, and amazing authority, in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. The church has been given, we have been given, Jesus' astonishing, amazing authority with which to proclaim his words to others. Third, Jesus gave that authority in a special way to the visible head of the church he founded. He told Peter that he was the rock on whom he was going to build his church and then gave him the authority even to open and lock the way to heaven. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, he told him. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The church firmly believes that that authority was passed down to St. Peter's successors all the way to Pope Francis. And Christ also gave his authority to the apostles as a whole, their successors, the bishops. When Jesus sent out the apostles, he told them, whoever hears you, hears me, and whoever rejects you, rejects me. Jesus continues to teach with staggering power in all of these ways. The question for us is, how do I respond to the Lord's teaching? Am I amazed and astonished by it? Am I grateful for it?
If we are, then we'll do what people normally do when they're amazed. We'll behave as if we can't possibly get enough of that teaching. We'll devour the Gospels. We'll seek to enter much more deeply into his words through Bible study and prayerful Lectio Divina. We'll be at the edge of our seats in church. We'll long to meet those who can open up the word of God to us and help us to experience anew Jesus' amazing and astonishing authority. There are some Catholics who live this way. Their fingerprints are all over their Bibles. They can't read enough commentaries to help them understand better what God is saying. They can't keep themselves from sharing all their learning. They behave about God and the love letters he has given us in the Bible with even more enthusiasm than Kansas City Chief and Tampa Bay Buccaneer fans are preparing for the Super Bowl. One of my favorite Catholic hymns, one that I had sung at my first Mass and regularly sing or say to God in prayer is, Word of God come down on earth. The lyrics summarize the type of amazement we're supposed to have to God's authoritative word. We sing, Word of God come down on earth, living rain from heaven descending. Touch our hearts and bring to birth faith and hope and love unending. Word Almighty, we revere you. Word made flesh, we long to hear you. Can we really pray those words? That we long to hear God's word more than a parched man longs for water. Second verse continues. Word eternal, throned on high, word that brought to life creation, word that came from heaven to die, crucify for our salvation. Saving word, the world restoring, speak to us, your love outpouring. When God speaks to us, he's pouring out his love. Do we receive it that way? The third verse focuses on the power of God's word. Word that caused blind eyes to see. Speak and heal our mortal blindness. Deaf we are, our healer be. Loose our tongues to tell your kindness. Be our word in pity spoken. Heal the world by our sin broken. And the final verse turns to the union between the two tables at Mass. The table of God's word and the table of the Eucharist. We sing, Word that speaks your Father's love, one with him beyond all telling. Word that sends us from above, God the Spirit with us dwelling. Word of truth to all life, to all truth lead us. Word of life, with one bread feed us. Jesus is that word of God. He is the one who comes down on earth to touch us, to enter into holy communion with us. This Sunday we turn to him and ask him to touch us in such a way as to make us burn for him with longing and amazement, softening and opening whatever hardness there may be in our hearts, so that led to all truth and fed by him and with him, we may become the echoes of his astonishing and amazing word among all our family members and friends in this world and one day among the choirs of saints and angels in eternal law around the heavenly throne. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 